Welcome back to Tom Talks Movies, where I'm going to talk today all about the wizarding world of Harry Potter. The last film in the series came out about seven years ago, and at that time I wasn't really well versed in the world. I'd maybe seen two or three of the films on reruns on TV, and I really remember having picked up a copy of The Half-Blood Prince from my school library, opening it and reading about Death Eaters and the Minister for Magic and being totally clueless. The book quickly returned to the shelf. I mean... I picked up the films and the books years later, but since then the series has um, become very personally important to me. I love it, and I think we're sort of um, continuing to brace its legacy as part of British culture across around the world. Um, there are eight films, seven books, roughly chronicling Harry Potter's school years at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, while he finds his place in the world challenged by good and evil. Um, basically, the other week I visited the main Warner Brothers office in London, um, and they had sort of Harry Potter artwork up everywhere, and it just made me want to talk about the films. So here we are. Generally speaking, all the films are good, great, in fact, and of course they're all different: different directors, different storylines, different themes and subject matters. But all the lovable qualities are consistent throughout, in part due to the great work of J.K. Rowling, the author of the series, and the extensive cast and crew that helped her realise her vision cinematically. One of the strongest qualities is the trio of brave main characters. Um, titular character Harry Potter was played by Daniel Radcliffe. He's a brave, unassuming, sort of uh, courageous, initially innocent character who develops real leadership qualities and remains kind throughout. Um, he's a proper hero and great to follow on this um, wizarding journey. Uh, he's seen alongside Hermione Granger, played by Emma Watson, who's a strong, intelligent female who, if Harry were without, he probably would have died m many years before reaching the age of 18. Um, and of course, Ron, or Ronald Weasley, uh, and the many faces of Rupert Grint, who's there just as Harry's best friend, and um, I don't know, we have a, he has a great little catchphrase that I can't repeat here. Um, I'm working off the assumption you basically know what Harry Potter is, but I'm going to be casually referring to each film, so I'm just going to remind the order of which they took place. So it's Philosopher's Stone, Chamber of Secrets, Prisoner of Azkaban, Goblet of Fire, Order of Phoenix, Half-Blood Prince, Deathly Hallows Part 1, and Deathly Hallows Part 2. In terms of the story and screenplay adaptation from the book type of things, I'd like to say that I think two things are crucial to the series' success. Firstly, they're sort of full of love and kindness and empathy, and secondly, the magical laws and fantasy elements are well established and the rules they lay are mostly consistent. It may sound obvious and redundant, but these two factors together are why the series can reach so many people. If it was all love and no grounding, you'd lose the gripping story. If it's all fantasy, no heart, you'd lose the human investment. The friendship between the school kids, the main trio, Harry, the Order of the Phoenix, Sirius, Remus, um, the member staff, and all those, like, all those different connections feel real, relatable, and human within this fantasy world. Some of the best scenes, uh, or like scenes that are really valuable to the series, um, are just Harry, Ron, and Hermione walking around the Hogwarts grounds. In different moments, those scenes, when they're all together, are contrasted with bits where Harry's feeling an awful lot of internal isolation. The success of um, this I attribute most to the Order of the Phoenix film, where him being cut out and feeling isolated is part of the story, but throughout the whole thing there are themes of isolation, kind of in spite of the love and um, uh, the love he feels from his friends and family. I definitely feel the weight of the world on my shoulders and the way it's portrayed here, I can imagine that like if you don't get rid of Voldemort and everyone dies, that's, the, that's a big world you've got on top of your shoulders so um, Harry's in a tough spot for most of it but he finds a way through um, the quality of the films doesn't differ that much they each just hold a different tone which dictates whether you sort of want to watch it or not they hold something of a seasonal identity based on different levels of warmth 
The first two have super warm colour palettes and feel vaguely Christmassy. Um, I know they have dedicated Christmas scenes, snow, big tree in the Great Hall, Harry being gifted the invisibility cloak, but perhaps it's just the work of um, the director Christopher Columbus, who, uh, after all, um, did also do Home Alone 1 and 2, for your information. Um, from there, the series diverges, but not to the point of it being unrecognisable. Prisoner of Azkaban is darker. Um, it has a lot of blues and is plagued by establishing shots of the Whomping Willow losing its leaves. It feels very autumnal. Um, I like the Half-Blood Half -Blood Prince too in this sense. It has the warm tone of the first two, despite being set in a deadlier time. Um, I'm just going to sort of run through quick reviews of each of the films individually on uh, chronolo chronological order, pointing out the things I sort of love and sometimes things I don't like about them. Um, culminating in a final ranking of them, so get excited for that. Um, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone uh, is where Harry has lived under the stairs of his aunt and uncle um, his whole life, but on his 11th birthday he learns he's a powerful wizard, with a place waiting for him at the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. As he learns to harness his newfound powers with the help of the school's staff and kindly headmaster, Harry uncovers the truth about his parents' death and the villain who's to blame. Um, the first thing to say about this um, is that it really sort of sets the tone for the whole series. The casting here is fantastic. The older cast of staff and um, adults is kind of a smorgasbord of great British talent. Um, and for the producers to get so lucky with the kids that look the part and have gone on, gone on to grow into decent teenage actors and adult actors can only be described as an act of magic, uh, excuse the pun. Um, I think the thing that stands out about the film the most is the sort of sets that are single room sets. Um, things like the Great Hall, Diagon Alley, the Gryffindor Common Room. They're all sort of very distinct and have recognisable styles that blend well but feel unique individually. I've had the sort of fortunate position of seeing them in real life. I've been to the Leavesden Studios Harry Potter tour um, I think twice um, uh, in the last like sort of five years. Um, and you really get a sense of how much uh, hard work and craftsmanship has gone went into those early films before practical effects um, kind of took over uh, in the sort of late uh, part of the first decade of the 2000s. Um, there is a lot of kind of oh look at that as you walk into a room. It sort of the film slows down and allows you to get a sense of the Great Hall. I remember them walking into the Great Hall and looking at the sky or them. Uh, all the characters in the first years in the boats going across the lake looking at a candle lit Hogwarts for the first time. Um, but it does make sense uh, because we're new to the wizarding world as is our lead character Harry. We're seeing it through his eyes. Um, unfortunately where a lot of the sets were made individually um, there's little to no interconnectivity or cohesion between the sets of the castle. The biggest impact of this means that it kind of limits any unique camera movements. The whole film is shot quite squarely there's a lot of people exiting the great hall and then hard cut to them walking into the common common room uh, instead of getting a sense of the great staircase um you do feel in this one that it's very close to the first first book the adventure is super light and easy to follow um but the and it leads to a kind of fun but borderline ridiculous ending. The ending with the sort of house cut points and Dumbledore announcing that Slytherin win only to give out another what fifty points to Ron, fifty points to Marnie, sixty to Harry, and ten to Neville. I think um, is a massive massive tease um, and it's fun from a Gryffindor point of view. But um, Snape looks fuming to be fair to him. Um, 
The Chamber of Secrets is where you've got sort of like cars flying, trees are fighting back, and a mysterious house elf comes to warn Harry Potter at the start of his second year at Hogwarts. Adventure and danger await when bloody writing on the wall announces the Chamber of Secrets has been opened. To save Hogwarts will require all of Harry and Ron and Hermione's magical abilities uh, and courage. Um, one of my favourite sort of aspects of this film is genuinely the one-time appearance of Kevin Branagh as Gilroy Lockhart. He's such a fun character, um, and it's used to illustrate um, some of the injustice that even exists in this fantasy world. The Weasleys, although true and hardworking, are mistreated, while the audience experiences it through Harry's embarrassment and horror at the situation. Um, even since The Philosopher's Stone, there's, there was, I think, a noticeable step up in quality between the two films, um, in terms of visual and practical effects from... Um, for example, I think Quidditch in this one looked maybe the best it looked in any of the films. Um, really zippy, fun, fluid camera movements. Um, and the puppetry for Aragog, the massive spider down in the Forbidden Forest, was probably good enough to trigger some arachnophobia. Um, this is the film where the characters are kind of built out a bit more. The side characters are introduced. You get sort of Dobby. Um, you get... Um, more of sort of the different families Arthur Weasley's introduced Lucius Malfoy's introduced a um, bit more Molly Weasley uh, sort of Hagrid again playing a big part um, first hints of the Ministry of Magic um, it's all fun stuff and it kind of just builds out the world a little bit more uh, and you see the benefits of that uh, later on Prisoner Azkaban sees Harry, Ron and Hermione return to Hogwarts for another magic filled year Harry comes face to face with danger yet again, this time in the form of ex escaped convict Sirius Black, and turns to sympathetic uh, Professor Remus Lupin for help. Um, it's weird because on a technical level, so much has changed from the last two here. Alfonso Caran's come in to direct and led to significant changes to cinematography and sound design changes. They don't just change what you see, but to a degree what you feel. Um, they're big, big changes, um, but it still holds a similar tone and doesn't feel like disgustingly different it kind of just feels right uh, the best example i can think of with sound design is there's in the chamber of secrets particularly a lot of the spells kind of sound quite explosive in this one they're a lot more graceful i know the whole film is built around the patronus charm which is a naturally kind of gentle spell but um uh, even the wide range of spells feel a lot more uh, atmospheric um the camera movements in general throughout this film feel a lot more visually stimulating. It's, it feels like a lot more handheld stuff. Um, the camera doesn't stop moving. and It contributes actually to probably what is the best paced film in the series. I know it goes hand in hand with the size of the book. It's a bit chunkier than the last two, but it's just about right to fit into a two hour plus movie. Um, I previously mentioned the bluer colours in the colour palette and it's ingrained into the whole film's design. You can't imagine the visuals of the Dementors working surrounded by orange, it's too happy a colour. Um, another thing I loved about the film was that the sort of the characters the the little the, the kids started wearing normal clothes around Hogwarts, um, not their school robes. They feel more relatable again, even if the fashion was I don't know not a questionable by normal standards um we get to see hermione punch draco and then by the merits of the time travel plot watch her rewatch and revel in her badassery um like michael gambon unfortunately has to replace richard harris who passed away between the two films as dumbledore um but i don't i don't want to say it's a positive thing that uh, the 
we've had to we've been forced to replace the actor, but uh, he brings a different element to the character. There maybe some of the quirkiness that's seen um, in in the book version of Dumbledore, and kind of a harshness and a underlying depth and coldness to the character, which is sort of. Um, you see more of and understand how it's attained from Half-Blood Prince to Deathly Hallows in the l last couple. Um, we're setting the stones uh, here very early with Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, Goblet of Fire then um, builds off builds off that iteration. Um, Harry starts his fourth year at Hogwarts, complete, competes in the treacherous Triwizard Tournament and faces the evil Lord Voldemort. Ron and Hermione help Harry manage the pressure, but Voldemort lurks in the in the background kind of foreboding waiting for his chance to destroy Harry and all that he stands for um, in my opinion this is the film in the series that struggles to condense the source material the most there's too much plot and makes weird script choices that uh, in my opinion focus too much on Harry's individual perspective um, when the Goblet of Fire should have been about Harry's first exposure to the wider magical world um, for example the World Cup the Quidditch World Cup tease um, getting there and then not watching the game and not even really exploring the kind of uh, hidden elements of corruption that was going on there uh, that's um, hinted at in the books um, I don't really know what the um, the Quidditch World Cup scene offers the film other than kind of establishing of um, Voldemort's uh, followers um, there could there probably could have been a different way to do that um, the film just does feel sort of plagued by pacing issues, particularly with the Triwizard Tournament uh, and the different iterations of the challenges. The first one is where all the champions have to take a golden egg off the um, off a, dra a different dragon each, and instead of seeing uh, each champion fight off their dragon, we just hear about it and are expected to care the same amount. And then with the under the water swimming task where they've got to try and capture one of their friends who's been taken hostage. Um, it's all very feels very rushed, and um, I know that it's it's kind of supposed to be reflective of Harry feeling out of his depth in the Triwizard Tournament, but it leaves the audience feeling um, rushed, basically, um, and it, all until that final act, which in admittedly in Goblet of Fire uh, sets the tone for the whole second half of the series and is wonderful in a, in of itself. Um, you sort of have the introduction of Voldemort and uh, poignantly the death of Cedric Diggory played by Robert Pattinson which is a horrifyingly brutal scene when he's returned to uh, sort of Hogwarts grounds and his dad is crying over his body it's a, a real sort of tearjerker um, Goblet of Fire I'd say in general is probably less funny than the book was which um, is sort of a, a change I don't know if that was sort of an intentional tone they took um, the comedy levels are normally quite representative from the books to the films. I think Half-Life Prince is a little bit funnier than the book was, and Goblet of Fire is a little bit less funny than the book was. Um, but it just made it a little bit less palatable for the audience amidst these sort of big ideas and big action scenes. Um, the Order of the Phoenix um, has Harry returning for his fifth year of study at Hogwarts. He's stunned to find that his warnings about the return of Lord Voldemort have been ignored. Left with no choice, Harry takes matters into his own hands, um, training a small group of students dubbed Dumbledore's army to defend them against the Dark Arts. Um, this is the first film directed by David Yates, who goes on to direct the rest of the series, and it feels a lot more modern, I think, than the previous entries. Um, and what's important to say here is that it gets the villains right. Um, Fudge is useless as the Minister, Minister of Magic, um, uh, and quite cowardly, um, uh, which... 
means that it's like the opposite of the Gryffindor vibe uh, that a lot of our main characters put on. Um, Umbridge uh, for a kid's film is probably one of the most vile villains imaginable. Um, and it's all the first time we get a real sense of Voldemort's power uh, in that battle he has with Dumbledore, um, where... Uh, you just get the feeling that these kids, although they've been sort of learning their magic at Hogwarts for a couple of years now, are just so wildly out of their depth, and it puts into perspective the challenge Harry has ahead of him, um, as these two great wizards kind of just go head-to-head -head, uh, in a complex battle that isn't just trying to kill each other or uh, sort of beat each other in a duel. It's like uh, um, Voldemort's kind of trying to show off while killing him to scare Harry, Dumbledore's trying to protect Harry. It's all very interconnected, very interesting. Um, and makes the battle more than just a sort of five-minute um, exploration of cool action. Um, Harry's feeling of isolation in this one is superb. I mentioned it before because it kind of permeates the whole series, but it goes hand-in-hand hand with the introduction of Luna Lovegood. Um, the things like seeing both of them only seeing the Thestrals because they've experienced death is a great touch, and it isolates Harry further, and I think he feels uncomfortable... Um, at the start of their relationship, that she's the person at the moment he's relating the most to. Um, her weirdness kind of makes makes him sort of uncomfortable that, that they they could be friends. Um, and in general, he's just tormented the whole way through the film. I think part of it is that he's tormented that the respect he holds for his elders isn't being reciprocated with Dumbledore, with the members of the Order of the Phoenix. Um, we know he respects them visually. They're telling us Harry literally starts dressing the same way as Lupin uh, when he was Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher in Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, it, that itself goes hand in hand with Harry taking a more leadership role as he's training the rest of the kids in Dumbledore's army. Um, it's the first film where Harry is kind of taking matters into his own hands to a degree. In previous iterations, he's been passive, but things have happened to him because he's forced into them. It's bad guys trying to get to him. Here he's sort of taking the fight to them. Um, it's interesting. Um, Half-Blood Prince, then, is a kind of a much more refreshing tone. Um, as Harry begins his sixth year at Hogwarts, he discovers an old book marked as property of the Half-Blood Prince and begins to learn more about Lord Voldemort's dark past. Um... And it, I say refreshing because for the first time in a long time, the kids st kind of feel like kids again, whereas in the previous one, Order of the Phoenix, they were starting to feel like sort of militant soldiers. The young characters are a bit old now, and it allows for some light-hearted kind of teenage comedy stuff, a light romance. It reminds you that our main characters are still kids being forced to deal with adult problems. Um, all that sort of comedy elements with the romance, Ron and his new girlfriend, and Harry with the Felix Felicis potion and trying to deal with Slughorn being annoying. Um... All that stuff is just fantastic and um, kind of light-hearted. I, I know the the complaint is that we're getting to the culmination of the series and they're still uh, messing around with Quidditch and uh, like light-hearted festivities. Um, but it, it feels important to remind yourself that ahead of the final battle, that these are kids, um, like sort of sixteen-year-olds, who are dealing with problems that are way out of their their um, abilities, basically. Um, and it's a tragedy that all of these kids, um, permeated best by Draco, but all of these kids uh, are people who are kind of like failed by their mentors and, and more than their enemies. Um, the empathy that they allow Draco to have in this is absolutely key to its success. It sort of helps you learn to empathise and acknowledge larger perspectives. We initially see Draco as the cartoon embodiment um, of childhood villainy. Uh, if anything, Tom Felton really overacts it in the first two or three. Um, 
but this film transcends that image and it can also and now we see Draco as a like a broken unprepared kid being cruelly used as a pawn by a generation that failed to do anything but patronise him um, as I mentioned earlier the blending of tones is immaculate and I think uh, there's some real kind of directorial finesse used in this one from David Yates the ending is interesting to say the least um, there's a difference in how the death of Dumbledore was portrayed from book to film where in the book um, Harry is kind of under his invisibility cloak paralyzed uh, due to a charm where he can't do anything uh, in the book in the film he acts he's uh, he's just hidden below acts out of um, uh, loyalty to Dumbledore not to act um, but it means that the kind of final confrontation with Snape in that film I think Harry is full of regret and sort of more as much anger towards Snape as he is anger about himself uh, and his inability to act. Um, Deathly Hallows Part 1 uh, has Ron, Hermione and Harry walking away from their last year of Hogwarts to find and destroy the remaining Horcruxes, putting an end to Voldemort's bid for immortality. But with Harry's beloved Dumbledore dead and Voldemort's unscrupulous Death Eaters on the loose, the world is much more dangerous than ever. I would say this one is massively, well not massively, a little bit underrated. The kids are forced to grow up quick and that goes hand in hand with the removal of Hogwarts and the shredding of the school year film pattern. The film opens expertly on a sort of escape from private drive type action thing with the Seven Potters Polyjuice Potion experiment. Um, and after that point, uh, it separates off and the film feels incredibly intimate. Harry and Hermione dancing is one of the most poignant scenes in the whole series. They're uh, just trying to just trying to get through it uh, the only way they know how. Um, and the film ends on uh, another incredibly sad scene where uh, Dobby passes away and it, like is lying such a beautiful place to be with friends is it's another um, tearjerker. Um, the film is pro one of the more underrated in the series. I feel, um, and it's followed up by Deathly Hallows Part Two. Um, Harry, Ron, and Hermione continue their quest to vanquish the evil Lord Voldemort once and for all, just as things begin to look hopeless for the young wizards. Um, Harry discovers a trio of magical objects that endow him with powers to rival Lord Voldemort's formidable skills. It's the long payoff to the sort of heavy setup, um, but the action isn't overbearing. A lot of script changes to account for more visual th things with the ending, um, sort of the explanation of Snape's feelings towards Lily and why he's been a double agent, secret agent the whole time um, is really interesting and the film balances the sort of heavy action scenes with the intimate stuff really well. Um, uh, and it's just another example of like the love and I love that in the final battle, um, as much as the characters on Harry's side want to defeat Voldemort, it's more that um, they want to protect each other. The moment when like Molly Weasley um, defeats Bellatrix Lestrange because she's putting up a fight with Ginny is um, wonderful, basically, um, and really emotional. Um, and now to... I know this is the moment you've all been waiting for. Um, to put all these sort of thoughts into something a bit more precise, I'm going to sort of attempt to rank them, and bear in mind you just heard the detail thoughts, you know roughly where it's going to come from. But um, from, first, from last to first... I'm starting, unfortunately, with Chamber of Secrets, uh, going on to Philosopher's Stone, Goblet of Fire, Deathly Hallows, Order of the Phoenix. That was eight to four, so now top three, drum roll please. Half-Blood Prince, Deathly Hallows Part Two, and I think the best film in the Harry Potter franchise is Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, I, Harry Potter means a sort of great deal for me. Uh, doing the research for this show was a load of fun because I haven't seen the films in uh, probably best part of a year. Um, 
But uh, I wanted to say thank you for listening, obviously, and can I encourage you to go back and listen to previous episodes of this show. Um, I try to make every episode listenable and enjoyable, if you haven't seen the film in question, uh, by making the discussion larger than a single film. Um, Anyway, if you can, uh, go for it. And in the meantime, put together your ranking of the Harry Potter series together um, and let me know how it goes. Thank you for listening. This has been Tom Talks Movies. Goodbye.